we're in this section of scripture where, where Paul is having to call out these false apostles who have come into the church at, at Corinth and they've been hijacking what was established there by Paul. And ultimately, what's been established in and through the gospel, but the gospel has been delivered by Paul to Corinth. So people moved in in Paul's absence and they're really just kind of uh, taking over, but doing so with a, a selfish agenda and motive. So in order to kind of undermine the gospel, these false apostles, of course, looked to undermine the deliverer of that gospel, which was Paul. They've sought to change things up a little bit. They've sought to add their own flavor and, and again, make it more about them. So they've got to discredit the gospel. And to do that, they got to discredit the one that brought the gospel. And so what they would do is they would say, well, Paul's not really a true apostle. They'd say his message wasn't really in line with what the other apostles stood for. They said, Paul's a real coward. He's strong in writing, but in person, he's weak and timid. And come on, he makes tents. This guy can't even make it in the ministry. How is he a guy that can be trusted? This is what they were saying to discredit Paul. That was their attack against him. The weapons that they were using to fight and tear down Paul. But remember Paul had said previously, as we saw last week in chapter 10, verse four, that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. So Paul doesn't respond back, kind of fighting fire with fire. He's not relying on deceptive practices now to try to tear down those false apostles and make himself look good. So what we see over these remaining chapters is Paul addressing these attacks that are against him. But He's not counterattacking. He's not trying to, you know, uh, come against them and, and tear them down. He's just presenting truth. And he begins to show what a true apostle looks like. He's not going on the defensive, but rather giving a good offensive. And it's an offensive of truth. That's what Paul is laying up. So we're going to look here at true versus false apostles. True versus false apostles. Apostles. We're going to look at, at three things in the remainder of chapter 10. First of all, we're going to look at Paul's authority. We're going to see Paul's appointment. And then we're going to see Paul's approval. So Paul's authority, Paul's appointment, and Paul's approval. Look at verse 7 again with me. And here's what we read. Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are are Christ. Now, again, in order to go against Paul and kind of discredit him, bring him down, they were really attacking Paul simply on an outward level. That's why Paul writes here to begin with, do you look at things according to the outward appearance? See, there was an, a, an Asian presbyter during the second century that said this about Paul and about, uh, you know, Paul's appearance. He said, Paul was a man, small of stature, with a bald head, crooked legs, in a good state of body, stocky, in other words, with eyebrows meeting and nose that was somewhat hooked, all right? This was not the poster boy of what uh, an evangelist would look like. Just think George Costanza. That's kind of the idea of what Paul is looking like, walking into Corinth. And everybody's going, who are you? Why would we listen to you, right? And so the people were judging Paul simply based on his looks. Sadly, the Greeks would oftentimes do that. And of course, remember that Corinth was a, a Greek city. And they 
placed a, a heavy emphasis on outward appearance, on style over substance. They were focused more on image, more than they were content. But as we see that, we have to ask, how about us? Do we do the same thing? Do we look at and evaluate things on outward appearances? You've all heard the saying, don't judge a book by its cover, but how easy it is to do that. We can do that within churches, where you go to church and you might see a great you know, display uh, of things happening on an outward level. They got great lights, man. They, the, the, the worship is just tight. It sounds awesome. And the speaker, man, he just is telling great stories. It's wonderful. But on an outward level, it might be all there. But what's really going on inwardly? What's the content? What's the substance like? Because we can get drawn in and captivated by outward things, but yet have no substance to it that ultimately does nothing for us. When we begin to evaluate things on an outward level, we are acting more fleshy than we are godly because this isn't the way that God does this. Aren't you glad that, that God doesn't view things that way? Now, Paul's one of the mightiest men of God that we see in the Bible, yet that people were quick to dismiss him for all the wrong reasons. And yet, as we look at God's word, we see that this is not the way that God evaluates things. God's not looking to pick all the mighty and strong and gifted in their own resources. He doesn't look to pick the most handsome, the tallest people, amen, for that. He doesn't look to judge things on an outward level. In fact, we see that very clearly when you, you see the account in 1 Samuel with Samuel going to the house of Jesse to anoint the next king of Israel. And as Samuel goes in and he's calling for the sons to come in, they're all thinking, well, this has got to be the guy. Look at how, how strong and, and, and tall and good looking. Surely this is the guy. We read in 1 Samuel 16, verse 6 to 8, so it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before us or before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I've refused him for the Lord does not see as man sees for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab thinking, well, this has got to be the guy. If it's not, El if it, if it's not Eliab, then it's got to be Abinadab. And he passed before Samuel and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And they go through all the sons and Samuel's like, neither of these guys are the, the next king over Israel. Is there any others? And Jesse's of course going, well, yeah, I mean, there's David, but he's out in the, in the shepherd's field caring for the sheep. Like that can't be the guy that God's gonna choose. He's small, he's young, he's kind of ruddy. He's like, he's, he's too, you know, fancy to be the guy that's gonna be the king over Israel. And yet when he comes in, God reveals to Samuel, that's the one. Because again, God's not looking at outward appearances. He doesn't see things as man sees. He looks at the heart. He's looking at the character of the man rather than the talents of the individual. He wants character over ability. See, we don't get accepted by God because we're so wonderful, we're so mighty, we're all put together the right way. It's because of a humble 
and contrite heart. He looks inwardly to our attitudes and our heart. Nobody should have any right in thinking that they are of Christ because they are impressive outwardly. God is no respecter of persons. In the same way, as, as Paul calls out to this church saying that, let him again consider this in himself that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. Paul's saying to the people there, and especially with the false apostles feeding these deceptions to the people, the believers in Corinth, he's saying, listen, are you guys in Christ? Well, if you guys are in Christ, what makes me now not in Christ? Just as you are in Christ, so too I am in Christ. Because again, God's not choosing based on outward appearances or abilities or talents. He's drawing people in that are, have a repentant heart that are ready to allow God to shape them and mold them and use them the way God intends to for his glory and purposes. And even more so, those in the church that doubt of Paul's salvation, well, they too then would be in trouble because they've responded to the gospel through Paul sharing the gospel. So if they question Paul's salvation, then they too are in trouble. So listen, if you guys are in Christ, then we also are obviously in Christ. He goes on to say in verse eight, for even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. So we understand Paul was given authority. We're, we're talking about that in this first section of our outline, Paul's authority. Paul was given authority, but notice this, this authority was given to encourage and edify, which means to build others up, not for their destruction. Paul was not taking this authority and coming heavy-handed now upon people, coming down on people to kind of prove this authority by lording it over others. No, he was coming in in a gracious way, seeking to bless others rather than destroy them. You know, one sign of a spiritual mature person, person is how they handle positions of authority. A spiritual leader will use their influence to encourage others and build them up. An immature or unspiritual leader will use their authority to build themselves up. And they will do so by trying to bring others down, make others feel less than so that they become more prominent around others. That's God's desire for people in authority to edify others, not to destroy. That's a very good evaluation of your spiritual maturity. Are you coming alongside others for their benefit and good to build them up ultimately? Or are you looking to puff yourself up by tearing others down? And we can fall into the trap of doing that sometimes very deceptively by, you know, coming to others and saying, hey, did you hear what this person's doing over here? You see how how wicked, how evil, they are. oh boy, we gotta pray for them. We gotta really take them to the Lord, man. They are really out to lunch here. And we can be acting spiritual, or thinking we're acting spiritual, but yet tearing others down, and in so doing, seeking to make ourselves look good. God's purpose for those in positions of authority is to edify and build others up around them. And for all the body of Christ, our heart and our desire should be to edify, to strengthen, and build up one another. Not to try to make ourselves, you know, better or higher than others. Now, 
for Paul, there, there would indeed be a time where boasting or, or proving his authority was necessary, but not to prove his authority for his own benefit, but more so to, to silence his critics and these false apostles. It's kind of put them in their place. That's why he says here in, in verse eight, even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, he goes on to say at the end of verse eight, I, I shall not be ashamed. I'm not gonna be ashamed of that because it's not about Paul, it's more so about declaring what God has done. So from chapters 10 to 12, understand this here, in this section we're gonna be looking at throughout the summer here at Riverside, chapters 10 to 12, Paul's really talking a lot about boasting. And he uses this Greek word, kakaomai, which he uses 18 times in these three chapters, chapters 10 to 12. 18 times he used that word, uh, kakaomai in the Greek, which is translated as boast or glory. Glory or glorying in the Lord. And Paul emphasizes that word boast to push back here against the false apostles who are boasting in their greatness. Paul says, however, I'm gonna boast, not in my greatness, not in, in my talents or abilities, I'm gonna boast in my weakness because as I boast in my weakness, it's revealing God's greatness and God's strength that's made perfect in my weakness. So Paul's gonna boast in a way that's ultimately pointing to Jesus Christ and making much of him. And in doing so, Paul's not, again, attempting to defend himself personally, but rather the message and ministry that he's been commissioned to share. But I love how Paul here, like in all of this that he's gonna be sharing and, and, and addressing to these false apostles, Paul likes to have a little bit of fun and he pokes fun at the things people were saying. So he sarcastically says here in verse nine that he doesn't, you know, wanna freak them out by the power of his writing, lest I, I terrify you by my letters, right? And they, again, were saying how strong he was in his letters, but up front, you know, in person, he's quite timid, quite weak. He's really not very authoritative. Paul says, oh, well, I, listen, I don't wanna scare you by my letters. So I'm gonna show up in person and then we'll do business here, right? That's kind of what Paul is saying. And he goes on to say in verse 10, what, what they had been saying, for his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. So these people were getting sidetracked by the messenger and not hearing the message at all. They were getting fixated upon Paul's appearance. They were like going, Paul, maybe if you just shave the middle part of that eyebrow, make it two as it's supposed to be, it'll be less distractive. We'll be able to maybe, you know, take you a little bit more seriously, right? But they were getting focused on all the wrong things on his appearance and, and basically writing off any kind of authority because he didn't present himself as this strong outward figure. Some traditions say that Paul even spoke with a, a lisp or maybe stuttered. And that's what is meant when he says that his speech is contemptible. Now, again, we've seen the history of the kind of people that God uses in the Bible, right? We've already seen how David would have been by a human evaluation, dismissed and overlooked, and yet that was the man that God was gonna choose to do great things. And by doing so through a man like David, when he stands before God, then God's gonna, what are you doing giving me this runt of a guy? Give me somebody better. 
And so when David defeats Goliath, everybody's going, oh my goodness. That had nothing to do with the strength of the man. That had everything to do with the strength of God working through that man. So God uses people, we see very clearly through God's word, that aren't the guys that you would typically put up to the front and say, oh, this is our guy. Moses himself was trying to get out of the calling God put on him. Moses saying, I'm not very eloquent, God. I'm slow of speech, you would say in Exodus 4.10. I'm slow of speech, God. You've got to pick somebody else. I can't do it. But I'm so glad that God isn't looking for the polished and the perfect. Otherwise, I'd be out of here, man. I wouldn't be your pastor. If he's looking for the polished and the perfect, I'd be over there working at Popeye's right now, probably. <laughs> be like, I can't. If God's looking for perfection, no way. But, but secondly... God doesn't always take the polish and the perfect because secondly, people would be so prone to give glory to that individual rather than give glory to God. They would look at the abilities, they would look at the, maybe the natural talents that work there and go, oh, this guy's amazing. This guy's so wonderful. But they would do it in a way where they wouldn't even give the credit to God because God gets overlooked in that because of the, again, the, the appearance or the ability. Warren Wearsby tells of a man he heard preach one time who used great, impressive words, but really lacked any real biblical content or message. As he was leaving with his friends, one of his friends said, 1 Kings 19.11 would really describe or summarize that performance perfectly. 1 Kings 19.11 says, the Lord was not in the wind. <laughs> and that's exactly what they viewed at this man. Even though people were raving about what a great message it was, most likely 20 minutes from then, they would not even remember what was said because it was all about this outward kind of appearance and there was no substance to it. Listen, a pastor, a, a person used of God needs to have substance and not just a bunch of hot air. Barnett writes in his commentary, the Greek world admired physical beauty and leisure while despising imperfection and manual labor. In terms of Greek values, Paul the tent maker of amateur speech and doubtful appearance had little to commend him. Before he became a noted orator, the young Demosthenes was subjected to ridicule in Athens on account of his poor physique and weak voice. This had to be rectified by a long and rigorous program of physical and vocal exercises. He corrected his lisp and his indistinct articulation by holding pebbles in his mouth while he recited long speeches and he strengthened his voice by running or walking uphill recitting speeches in a single breath. This indicates the seriousness with which physical bearing and public speaking was viewed in the Greek world. See, to Greek eyes, Paul was very inferior. Paul was nobody to look to with any kind of uh, authority or prominence. But they're soon going to see a different side to Paul altogether. Look at what he says in verse 7. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters, when we are absent, such will also be in deed when we are present. So Paul says here that if they wanted, wanted to be like his letters, then fasten your seatbelt because Paul's going to come on the scene and he's going to be every bit as bold and strong as they said he was in his letters, but failed to be in presence. Paul says, I'm going to show up and you're going to see a different Paul. He's going to come with this weight 
and power, and he's gonna be upfront and in person with them. You know, there are times where Paul needed to do some house cleaning. He was a very gentle and gracious person because he's understood the grace and the gentleness that he's received from the Lord. And that's how he wanted to conduct himself. But he also knew that there were times as a shepherd cares for the sheep, part of that caring for the sheep needs to take bold action in protecting the sheep from wolves. And Paul is having to do that. He's seeing what these false apostles are doing and how they're changing the gospel. They're, they're, they're derailing everything that's taking place, sabotaging the work and leading people astray. Paul says, it's time now that I, I do come with authority and strength and, and have to put people in place for the protection of the sheep. So we've seen Paul's authority and he's ready to come and display that now in person with them. But it's a God-given authority. And it's a God-given authority ultimately to edify, not to destroy. And again, Paul's not looking to destroy these individuals, but he's seeking to present the truth. And if they don't wanna receive the truth, then they need to be dealt with in the, in the right way. So we see Paul's authority, but look at Paul's appointment here now as we move to verse 12. And we read this. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. See, Paul's critics in Corinth could boast because they were comparing themselves with others around them, even comparing themselves to those in the church. And remember how Paul describes that church in Corinth in the beginning of 1 Corinthians? They were a carnal bunch. They were very worldly. They were not acting spiritual. So for these false apostles to compare themselves and, and display this pseudo-spiritualism next to a carnal bunch of believers was not a, a tall order. Made them look pretty good. Listen, the ugliest and cheapest of jewels is gonna sparkle and shine next to a heap of dung. It's gonna look good next to that, right? Well, that's what these guys were doing. They were comparing themselves to the wrong things. We're not called to compare ourselves with others because our standard will always be flawed when we do. If I tell you, listen, I'm an amazing hockey player, but I'm comparing my skills next to my grandson who can barely hit the ball with his hockey stick, I'm gonna look really good next to that. But if you line me up next to Elias Pedersen, you're gonna see a whole different side. You're gonna be like, Brent, maybe just better give up hockey. Just Sell your sticks. You don't need them any longer. You're not very good, right? My, my assessment of my ability was flawed based on the wrong standard of measurement. And that's the problem with comparing ourselves with one another. Because we'll always find someone who we're better than, who are more spiritual than, who maybe we're, we're, we're doing more for the Lord up against that person. And what happens oftentimes is it only leads to our own pride and our boasting in self. But it's the wrong standard of measurement. We need to measure ourselves, not by man, but by the man, the God man, Jesus Christ. He's the standard we are to be assessing where we are at in our spiritual walk and in our maturing into the likeness of Jesus Christ. When we compare ourselves to Jesus, well, what happens? We suddenly realize that we have nothing to boast in and of ourselves. We quickly realize the person I thought I was so much better than isn't really that much different than me compared to Jesus. It levels the playing field. Just as I needed the, the grace of God to be accepted by God, 
just as I realize I'm far from perfection next to Jesus, so too now there's not much gap between me and that person I was comparing myself to. Don't worry about other people's accomplishments or abilities. Just keep asking, how does my life line up with what God has for me? How does my life look in comparison to Jesus? Because I wanna ever be growing more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. I wanna be transformed into his image, not comparing with others, but comparing with Jesus Christ, who is the standard and the goal for us. Comparison by any other standard will either cause us to boast in self, thinking ourselves better than we are, or it causes us to loathe ourselves when we compare to others that are much greater than us and, and we think we're so unworthy, we're failures. But we have that, that evaluation based on the wrong standard of measurement. Paul says it's not wise. It's not wise to do that. We don't compare ourselves with those around us. We don't use that as a, as a measuring device. It's not wise. Comparison by the wrong standard does not bring about spiritual fruit, and it'll rob you of joy. You'll always find that, oh boy, I'm, I, I, I'm not worthy, or I, I, I'm so terrible next to that person, or we get too prideful in ourselves next to another. Rather, we look to Jesus, and we recognize, man, it's only by His grace that I'm saved, that I can be in, in fellowship and relationship with God. He's not called me because I'm deserving. He's not invited me in a relationship with him because I'm so perfect. He's done it by his grace and by his mercy. And it levels the playing field with every single one of us. Because none of us were worthy, none of us were deserving. None of us are, are perfect, but we desire to be a group that continue to edify, want to build each other up as we all look unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the standard. So we look to him. Verse 13 goes on to say, we, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. So Paul would not boast of things outside of his authority or boundary. And notice, Paul didn't just go where he wanted, when he wanted, and do what he wanted to. There was always a, a directing and a leading and a guiding from God. He says here that he operated within this sphere which God appointed. Paul didn't look to overstep that boundary that God had laid out saying, Paul, here's where I have you for right now. Paul didn't look at that and go, but Lord, over here, there's some really nice beaches right on the Mediterranean. I think I could really do some effective ministry right over here. I'm going to just, I know you got me here, but I'm going to just, I'm going to just overstep some boundaries. Paul didn't do that. He operated within the, the, the limits of the sphere which God had appointed him. Paul knew that there in Corinth, that's where God appointed him to minister. He says, a sphere which especially includes you. I mean, that would not have been a place that most people would have wanted to go to as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was a very carnal city, the, the Las Vegas of that day. There was great paganism, idolatry. Sexuality was perverse there. It was a difficult place to minister, yet that's where Paul went, not because he goes, that's gonna really do good for, you know, my own accolades. Paul went there because God brought him there. 
Paul was simply faithful. But these other guys are riding on Paul's coattails and trying to sabotage, sabotage the genuine work that had gone on in Corinth by the Lord and, and through Paul. Paul says in verse 14, we're not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you, for it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. Again, Paul's not trying to be somebody he's not called to be. He's not trying to do something he's not called to do. He didn't create a, a ministry. For, he didn't go to Corinth thinking that, I, again, I could really build my own empire here and really make a name for myself. He didn't purchase his apostolic card on some, you know, website. He's there because God has called him there. He's not overextending himself. He's not trying to be something that God isn't calling him to do, to be. And, and again, being in Corinth was no easy task. But look at the fruit that's coming. And it has nothing to do with Paul. Paul can't boast in that himself. He can only glory in the Lord. But he recognized, I'm not overextending myself. I'm not going beyond what God's called me to do. Here's the question for us. What has God called you to do? God's not calling you to do everything. Don't overextend yourself. But find something to do for the Lord. Serve in the church and be faithful in it. That's what God is looking for you, to be faithful with what God has appointed for you to do. What has God appointed for you to do? Be faithful in it. You don't have to do everything. You don't have to go beyond the means. You don't have to compare with somebody else and go, well, that person's doing that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do one better than that. I'm gonna show that person how spiritual. We're not comparing with others because success isn't, again, measured by the world standards. Success biblically is measured by simply being faithful with what God has called you to do. Don't overextend yourself, but be faithful in that area that God has appointed for you. He says here in verse 15, not boasting of things by measure, that is, in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. So Paul repeats the idea here of not boasting in other people's labors, most likely because this is what his opponents at Corinth were doing. They were glorying in the work at Corinth as though they had something to do with it. They had nothing to do with it. They weren't responsible for the ministry there. In fact, they shouldn't have even been there because they weren't called by God to be there. They were simply trying to take credit for what God had done through Paul and to make a name for themselves and to exercise this authority over other people for their own benefit. Well, we've seen Paul's appointment Let's look at Paul's approval lastly, verse 17. Great verse. And Paul quotes from Jeremiah 9, verse 24. He says, but he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. That's a great passage. I hope you underline that. I hope you keep that before you. But let's look at what Jeremiah 9 says, just going back one verse, in verse 23. We read this. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, 
that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. You know, there are three things that the world seeks after, and it still rings true today. People will prioritize wisdom, might, and riches. They focus on academics, athleticism, acquisition, mind, muscle, and money people will clamor for, but none of these things are lasting. See, we can fill our minds with wisdom and knowledge, but they will eventually begin to wear down and let you down. And we can take great pride in our might and strength, but guess what? That easily begins to fade as well. Our riches, they're fleeting at best. John Corson said this, neurologically, our brains hit their peak at about 20 years of age. Physiologically, a man is at his apex of physical strength between 27 and 29. Financially, only a fool thinks his finances are immune to abrupt changes in the economy or the geopolitical situation. But eternally, if you know God, you'll always be at the top of your game. See, so you can read that and, and you look at all these things and go, oh my goodness, I am way past my prime. What am I even doing here? Put me in a bed in a hospital somewhere. I'm in trouble. But again, God's not saying that we need to glory in what we're able to offer. And in fact, notice what Jeremiah says. We don't even glory in the work that's being done in us through the Lord. He says, glory in this, that you understand and know me, that you're in right relationship with God by Jesus dying on a cross to pay the penalty for your sin, that all those that accept him are in right standing with God, forgiven of their sin, given the free gift of eternal life. That you understand and know me, that's what you glory in. And that's all again, due to God, you don't glory in that for yourself to go, well, man, I've really just kind of, you know, figured it all out for myself. I was really lost and blind. And then I just kind of realized, well, I looked around, there's gotta be a God. I put two and two together. And in my own wisdom, I've come to know God. No, it's not even about yourself. It's the fact that God has led you and guided you by his spirit, opened your heart to receive those things. That you understand and know him. That's what we glory in. Just like Jesus, when he sent his disciples out to, to do the work and ministry, they all came back and they were rejoicing in all the things that, that even demons are, are, are trembling at the name of Jesus. People are being made well. People are, and Jesus says, don't rejoice in those things. Rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We rejoice and we glory in the fact that we're his, that we're in Christ and we have everlasting life. Praise the Lord. And, and the fact is not just that we are saved, but yes, that he does work in us and uses us for his purposes. But none of that has to do with you or your abilities. It has to do with God's grace. And it's all for the glory of God. If you're living for or depending on the wrong things, You'll find they'll let you down eventually. What are you boasting in today? You ever been around those that are always talking about themselves, puffing themselves up, boasting in their accomplishments? It's not always fun, but I'm sure we could all find things about ourselves that we could boast in. You know, last yesterday we had our, our final game for the Riverside Royals, our church 
uh, team in the uh, Langley Christian Softball League. We, had our, we, we did great. We, a lot of people could be boasting and what happened in that season, we started out rough, we we're losing all our games, we we're ready to pack in and we're like, this is not for us. Let's get out of here while we still can, right? But then we turned around, we started winning and we got to the semifinals yesterday. We did great. Uh, yeah, there's some clapping going on in the background. All right, stop. No, we're not, we're not boasting in those things, but lost by one run. It was great, very good. Good time, but lots of great things that could happen. I, I thought about some of the things that, you know, happened in that season. Uh, I thought about the time when I, you know, hit this um, home run and we were playing against this team that we were rivals against. We weren't beating them at all. And this game, we were finally getting close and I hit this home run, brought in the winning drive, walk off home run. I thought, I would love to share that one Sunday. And I thought, I probably shouldn't It'd be inappropriate to be boasting. I said, you know what, I vowed I'm not gonna talk about that time when I hit that home run and brought in the winning run to beat that team that we hadn't beaten before. For the first time, I thought, I'm not gonna do it. It wouldn't be right. So, so I'm not going there. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. I find that, you know, I can amaze myself sometimes. And at other times, I leave my keys in the front door all night, open for burglars to come in, like open invitation. You want in our house, it's okay, it's locked, but the keys are outside in the key. And if you want a car, the keys on the car, or car keys are on the keychain too, in the front door, waiting for anybody to come in. So you find, you know, things that you can rejoice in, but it all comes back against you sometimes as well, if you're seeking to promote self or boast in self. But here's the thing, aren't you glad that all this boasting in self is gonna cease in heaven? Because all that we're gonna find to boast in when we are before Jesus Christ is to boast in him and to glory in him because he's done it all. And we're gonna quickly realize there was nothing that I contributed to this other than receiving him as my Lord and my Savior. If it's gonna cease and if all that boasting is gonna cease in heaven, why not let it cease now? Because the only thing worth boasting in is the Lord. Let him who glories glory in the Lord, Paul says. Then he ends in verse 18, for not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. See, we could all puff ourselves up around other people or again, in comparison of other people, but what does the Lord think of you? That's what really matters. Who are you in him? How is a person commended in the Lord? How's a person commended in the Lord? I would say it's by living to glorify him, not living for self-promotion. It's the life that is seeking to make much of Jesus in every area of your life, rather than living for personal accolades or praise. Are you living in a way where you're making much of Jesus, where everything you do is about him and for him? That's the life that's commended before the Lord. Serve him, be a faithful minister of the gospel and you will be commended. Let's make that our goal and our boast here today in and through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for your word and for the, the blessing that you are, all that you've done for us and we recognize here today that we are nothing without you. There's nothing to boast in, in and of ourselves. Lord, we wanna live for you, we wanna glory in you and glorify you and may we do that. Help us, God, to be those that aren't focused on self, 
not trying to bring praise to ourselves, but rather our boasting in you and giving all glory to you. So lead us on now as a church to do these things and put them into practice. We pray in your name. Amen.